In November, at the elders' meeting, Pastor Matt asked who was up for preaching on January 1st. He said that he would likely not be here because he would be in a birthing room with his wife. So while we thought that was an acceptable excuse, there was this long, awkward silence. It, was, it felt a bit like, you know when you're at a restaurant and the check comes and everybody's arms are just a little too short, they can't reach their wallet? It was kind of like that. It was this long, awkward silence. And it was hard on me because I knew that it was my turn. (laughs) So after 15 seconds of awkwardness, I said, well, I guess it's my turn. I've been working on a sermon for the past few years. I haven't done this in a couple of years. I've been working on a sermon, so I guess I'll do it. Sign me up. So he said, well, don't worry. It's New Year's Day. There'll be hardly anybody here. So uh, I'm, uh, I want to welcome you. There's lots of people here as far as I can see. <laughs> I want to welcome you. And my, my son actually said to me, he said, you know, Dad, you know that you're preaching on annual hangover day. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm preaching in a Baptist church. So there'll be a couple of things. There won't be very many hangovers, and people won't be tired from dancing all night. So the topic I wanted to talk about is one that is of good news and great joy, which is really appropriate for this time of year. But it's often misunderstood, and it's probably not talked about enough. And the topic is heaven, if you hadn't already picked up by the worship music. All I did was mention that the topic was heaven, and they have these beautiful worship songs. Let's take a few minutes and consider something that has so many positive aspects for a believer, for a Christian. And that we should be spending lots of time in this, reading about it, studying it. But most of us, myself included, have bought into this cultural stereotype that focuses on our current lives. And we spend so much time thinking about what will my legacy be, that we don't think about that great future. So let's talk about it for a few minutes, Um, but before we do, please bow your heads with me and we'll ask the Lord to join us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for new beginnings, for a new year, Lord. Thank you for being with us, for sending your Son, for dying for us, Lord. We pray that you would join us here this morning. We pray that you would give me the proper words to say as, uh, as we take on this exciting exciting, exhilarating topic, Lord. We pray that you would be honored and you would be glorified, and we ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. So let's be honest. If if there was a continuum on this side is a person who has no faith whatsoever, doesn't believe that there is anything after our 70 to 90 years on this earth would just become worm food, and over here is a Bible-believing Christian who is dying to go to heaven and is living their lives every minute toward that end. Most of us are probably somewhere in here. We probably believe that our salvation is eternal. We probably believe that in one day we will go to glory, whatever that means. But to be honest, we live in a little bit of fear. We fear death. We fear, we, we especially fear a slow, painful death. 
but we fear death. We fear that, that unknown. I had to face this recently um, when I had to go 37 times to the cancer center and go in a big steel machine and listen to it clang and buzz for six minutes at a time, knowing that it was actually literally destroying a part of my body. Unfortunately, it destroyed a couple of other parts that I was still using. I was very happy with, like saliva glands and stuff like that. The radiologist was very up, upbeat, and he said, I've got really good news. This cancer has got a very high success rate. We put a little chemo with it, and you got a, like a 70 to 80% chance of survival. Well, I don't know about you, but when those words get spoken to you, I didn't hear the 70 and 80. He just told me I had a 20 or 30% chance of dying. So that kind of brings you face to face with this exact topic. I was, when people would ask me how I was doing and how was my faith, and you know, I'd say, well, medical science is throwing everything they can at this, so I'm just going to trust in the Lord. But deep down inside, I, there were days when I was really scared. I was really afraid. I didn't want to say goodbye to my wife, my kids, my little granddaughters. It was, it was, it was, I was fearful. But, When we, when we really study this topic, there's no need to be fearful if you really know the Lord. In the 1970s, there was a movie come out called Heaven Can Wait. I think it was um, Warren Beatty. And in it, a man was killed, and he went to heaven. But the whole thing was a big mix-up. He got there, and they thought, well, we're not ready for you yet. You're not really supposed to be here yet. So we're going to send you back, and we're, you're going to inhabit another man's body. He happens to be a quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. So he went on and won the Super Bowl. So it was a really lighthearted, happy movie. But the whole premise was that he was postponing death and um, also postponing heaven so that he could get a few more years on the earth. That's the first misconception that I want to explore. The first point is that heaven's something that we should anticipate with joy. We should be very joyful about heaven. Now, most of what I'm going to say today comes from a book. If you've heard me speak before, you know that I just do book reports. I don't actually have an original thought. This book is called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and I really highly recommend that you not only borrow it and read it, but that you get it and turn to it quite often. Um, if you know Randy Alcorn at all, if you've read any of his books, you know that he states a lot of things as fact, and he gives you a lot of opinions. The things that he states as fact are very strongly backed up scripturally. The things that he says as opinion, you can debate. And, and who knows? There's, there's no way to prove that he's right or he's wrong. Um, but he did 25 years of research on this book. So, and he gives you reasoned, logical explanations on why he believes the way he does. And we'll, we'll get into a bunch of those questions later. It's fascinating. Funnily enough, when Alcorn started doing his research, he found that the, the libraries and the bookstores aren't exactly overflowing with uh, books on heaven. Why is this? Well, Christians have failed to grasp and explain the Bible's teaching on this topic, despite the ramifications on our lives. Did you know that since the, the uh, beginning of time, it's estimated there have been 70 billion people on the earth? 
there's currently about 7 billion. Therefore, the death rate's 90%, right? That's how you can use statistics to prove your points. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but the death rate's 100%. Every second, three people die in the world. In the time it takes you to come in this church, worship God, and leave again, 11,000 people have died in the world. 11,000 people in one hour have gone to either heaven or hell. In Psalm 39, King David says, You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Now you'd think with that knowledge, we'd be falling over ourselves to, to read and write books about where we go after that momentary breath happens. It's, it's a snapshot in the eternity of time. If you were told tomorrow that you're going to be transferred to Europe, to some country you would never, you'd never been, and we didn't know, didn't know when you'd be back again, the first thing you do is you go to a library or a bookstore and find a book on that place and try to read and think about what's life going to be like there? How's it, how's this going to affect my life? I don't know how long I'm going to be there, so I really need to understand it. J.C. Ryle says, before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Even John Calvin never wrote on heaven. In spite of his incredible writings on Christ's salvation, scripture, and the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote 900-page theology called Great Doctrines of the Bible. And in it, he devoted two pages to heaven and eternity. C.S. Lewis says that one of the reasons for this um, falls in line very well with the, with the um, sermon series that Pastor Matt just finished on worldview. One of them is naturalism. You remember the, the sermon on naturalism. We don't believe things that we can't see and prove scientifically. The world... And, to some extent, parts of our personalities as well like to grab onto things that we can see and prove. God can't be real because we can't see him, and heaven can't be real because we can't go there and experience it. Many people, including a lot of pastors, grab the verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9, what, no what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human being has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. They stop there, and, and so from that, they would conclude that there's no point in thinking about this because we can't, our minds can't grasp it. God is too great for us. We can't, we can't grasp it. But if you go on to verse 10, it says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And verse 13, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we need to accept that there's many things about heaven that aren't revealed to us. But don't stop there. Lots of things are revealed to us in the Bible. And it's, and it's not about a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial with people in white suits on little fluffy clouds talking about, well, what are we going to do today? I was actually in a small group one time, not, not in this church, in a previous church. I was in a small group and the topic of heaven came up. And it was astounding. Most people in that group said, yeah, heaven. We just sit around and worship God all day. It's going to be so boring. I don't know why anyone could look forward to that. That's a, that's a lie that we've, we've grasped. But that's not what the Bible says. So let's look at this. If you die today, where will you go? Right now, if you died today, when you walk out this door, you die, where will you go? Well, Scripture is very clear that the final destination 
And as we've just sung about, about three different songs, the final destination will be the new earth, and we will be resurrected there after Christ's return. John says in Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying that now the dwelling of God is with me, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So God's dwelling place, or heaven, will one day be on the new earth. And we'll explore that in a few minutes, and that's really exciting. But today, Christ hasn't returned yet. Unless he does in the next couple of minutes, if you were to die today, where would you go? And that's my second point. There is an intermediate heaven in the angelic realm. So those who are saved, but no longer living on earth, will be in what is called the intermediate heaven. If this is a new term to you, it's in the Bible. It's an angelic realm distinct from your former earthly home. We'll be conscious there, as Christ tells us in Luke, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. We'll be with Christ, as he points out to the thief on the cross in Luke 23. In Revelation 6, the martyrs are crying out for God to bring justice to the earth. We will be conscious, spiritual beings, and the judgment will simply be, at that time, are you in or are you out? But will we be physical? So Alcorn says, yes, we will be physical. If we jump ahead for a minute, Scripture points out that we're physical beings in the eternal heaven. In the new earth, we will be physical beings. That's our ultimate destination. We're physical beings right now on the earth. So Alcorn's point is it's just not logical to be physical beings at the beginning and physical beings at the end and become something else in between. Revelation 15.8 says, The temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God. There are scrolls and elders who have faces and people with palm branches in their hands in Revelation 7. There are musical instruments in the intermediate heaven in Revelations 8. Horses coming and going in and out of heaven in 2 Kings 2. An eagle flying overhead in Revelation 8.13. Now, some of these can be symbolic. I, I'm not saying that, that that's exactly what will happen. Some of them will be symbolic, but they can't all be symbolic. By this same logic, we'll all have physical bodies. Now, there are many scriptures from Paul and John that support this, but to me, there's one overwhelmingly convincing passage in the Bible that we will have bodies, and that is after Christ's resurrection. He had a physical body, and they touched his nail scars, the disciples. And we know he's in the intermediate heaven. So if there's one person in the intermediate heaven with a body, then shouldn't we all? So there's three very important verses that I want to look at for a second in Revelation 6 that tell us a lot about this intermediate heaven, and then we'll move on. It's on page uh, 1031 in the Pew Bibles. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. So starting in verse 9. When he opened this fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood 
on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, Alcorn takes those three verses and he makes 21 points. Uh, We don't have time for that, but I just want to hit on a couple of the most important ones. They remembered their lives on earth. They're They're in intermediate heaven. They remember their lives on earth. They remember that they were martyred, that they were killed. They spoke and they spoke loudly. They spoke in a loud voice. There was unity. It wasn't a whole bunch of different voices. They're individuals and they're wearing white robes. Therefore, they must have bodies. They said, God said, wait a little longer. So there was time. And finally, God is sovereign and he knows everything that's happened to each and every one of them. So this leads to another interesting question. If we're in heaven and we know what's happening on earth and we remember the injustices, doesn't that go against the belief that there are no tears and pain in heaven? We've all heard that. Every every one of us have heard that line. There are no tears or pain in heaven. Well, Alcorn believes that the joy of being with Christ will dominate everything. But in the intermediate heaven, with Christ, doesn't it make sense that Christ grieved while he was on earth? He grieved for the suffering of his people. Won't he still be grieving them when he's in heaven? And the earth is still existing? He's hurting for his people, even though he's there, until the fulfillment of the new earth. The verse in Revelation 21 that's often quoted says, he'll wipe away every tear and there will be no death or mourning or pain. And and that's very true. But this refers to the eternal heaven, the new earth, not the intermediate heaven. This goes against a lot of the things that we've probably assumed. So where is this intermediate heaven? It's invisible to us, and we probably have trouble understanding it. And we probably have a hard time talking about it with your colleagues at work. Did you know that there's an angelic realm around us here right now of angels and people who've gone on, Christians who've gone on from this earth? Well, just remember that the leading physicists at Yale and Princeton and Stanford and Sheldon Cooper, too, postulate through string theory that there are ten unobservable dimensions and an infant number of imperceptible universes, the multiverse. These people are believed to be the smartest people on Earth. So why are we self-conscious about believing there's one unobservable dimension, an angelic realm around us? with saved sinners and angels and heaven and hell. In Acts 2, Stephen looked into heaven when he was being stoned to death for his faith and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. In 2 Kings 6, God revealed to Elijah's servant a glimpse of the invisible realm with horses and fire and chariots. I could stand up here for two hours and talk more about the intermediate earth, all based on what Alcorn says but I want to focus on the new earth, and this is really, really exciting, so I'm going to move on. One author says, The eternal heaven will be so unlike anything we can imagine, our current language can't describe it. Well, that may be true, but the Bible certainly does describe it. So that's my point three, is eternal heaven is a renewal of earth. Alcorn says we're homesick for Eden. 
We long for a perfect and beautiful earth with untainted relationships with God, each other, animals, and the environment. Really, every attempt we've ever made for human progress has been to try and overcome what was lost in the Garden of Eden, the fall of man. Will the eternal heaven be a place? Well, in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 13, it's a city. We have no problem imagining what a city looks like. It has buildings, it has culture, it has art, it has goods and services. Hebrews 11.16 describes heaven as a country. Countries have rulers, territories, diverse people groups, patriotism, pride of identity. Our current earth has lakes, rivers, mountains, trees. God doesn't promise us a non-earth, he promises a new earth. So won't the new earth have mountains, lakes, rivers, and trees? Alcorn gives a three-page chart, um, which I'll leave to you to get the book and study. But it's interesting because it, it, it has three different columns, the three different eras of mankind, the garden, the current earth, and the new earth. For example, in Eden, there was no sin. After the fall, sin corrupted the world. And in heaven, the new earth, sin will be removed from the world. In Eden, man walked with God. Currently, humans are physically cut off from God. But in the new earth, we'll be face to face with God. In Eden, mankind learned from God. Currently, we learn in an impure world. And in heaven, man will learn and create in purity. So God is not giving up on the original creation. He's renewing it. Isaiah 66.22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's an entire biblical vocabulary that we sometimes forget that makes this point clear. Listen to the words that are used in the Bible. Reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. You're catching my drift here? There's an R-E in front of every one of those, which means to get back to the original condition that was lost. If God wanted to abandon us all to hell, if he gave up on us and cast us all to hell and started over again, he would do that. But that wasn't the original plan. The original plan is that we will live on this earth and those that are saved will go to the new earth. We were created to have dominion and when we chose sin over acceptance of our roles, then we were given another chance through the sacrifice of Christ. The original good creation is to be restored with us as the managers. Think about that. So we can't take on this role and exist in the new earth without having been resurrected. The belief that Christ was resurrected and is the forerunner of our resurrection is what sets us apart, from both from the secular world and from all other religions. This is one of the most clear Bible verses in the Bible, and one of my favorites, where Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, and we are to be pitied more than all men. That says it all. 
Listen to what Randy Alcorn says. The power of Christ's resurrection is enough not only to remake us, but also to remake every inch of the universe. Mountains, rivers, plants, animals, stars, nebulae, quasars, and galaxies. Christ's redemptive work extends resurrection to the far reaches of the universe. This is a stunning affirmation of God's greatness, and it should move our hearts to wonder and praise. Am I beautiful? Now, I don't want to gloss over passages. Some of you are thinking, but what about the passages, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said in uh, Luke 21, but my words will never pass away. Or Second Peter, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. These seem to imply that the old earth will be destroyed. Some of the hymns that we just sang imply that the old earth will be destroyed. There are many other passages that imply the concept of resurrection, and it's a really interesting, fascinating study, and I'm not going to go into it anymore here. I would just ask you to. All I'll say is that Alcorn spends a lot of time thinking about this. He quotes Wayne Grudem, Anthony Hickema, and John Piper extensively. So I hope you'll take the time to, uh, to study that. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. Another component that I'm not going to talk about is the millennium, and we, get, we sometimes get hung up on that. You may be premillennial, post-millennial dispensationalist, or you may be amillennial. All we know is the new earth will have a beginning. We don't know when, but it will have a beginning, and it will be eternal. So let's spend a couple of minutes thinking about what the eternal heaven will, be, will really be like. The Bible says many times that heaven is our home. The new earth will be our home. So home, what's implied by the word home? For one, it will be familiar and comfortable. Most of us have many wonderful memories from home and loved ones who shared it. If you're a parent, you remember that time, and it's it's happening probably right now at Matt and Angelo's house. They're preparing a nest for the little one. They're preparing a home to make that baby feel warm and comfortable. Imagine what God's going to be doing to prepare ours. This new home, which we will share with resurrected people that we love, will be on the new earth. Okay, so think about that. You have a 15-year-old car, and you go and buy a new car. Does the new car have wheels and a motor? Yes, it does. Of course it does. It's just an upgraded version of the old one. It's got all the bells and whistles. So the new earth will still have trees and mountains and lakes, but there will be natural wonders that we just cannot imagine. It will be upgraded beyond our imaginations. One time, Lynn and I had the opportunity to go to see the Grand Canyon. So I I I don't know if you can still drive into the park or not. They were talking about making you park outside the park and take buses in to try to extend the life of the the place. But um, at that time, we drove right in. We drove right into the south rim, into the parking lot, Got out of the car. I thought, oh, there's a, there's a railing over there. It must be the canyon over there. We walked up to the rail and looked out and literally took our breath away. This is the expression, takes your breath away. Lynn started to cry. I was absolutely speechless. The beauty of the Grand Canyon. There was a woman beside us who was going through the exact same thing. One of us said, this is awesome. And she turned and she said, This is awesome, not like a new pair of shoes, awesome. This is awesome, like the creator of the universe, awesome. That was a good way to describe it. 
in the new earth, that'll be an everyday occurrence, an everyday experience. The final point that should fill us with the most awe, however, is my fourth point, and that's in heaven, we will live with God and walk with Jesus. Now, if I was going to put things in order, level of importance, obviously that should have been my opening line. But I wanted to try to paint a picture of the intermediate heaven and the physical new earth. As you recall, in ancient Israel, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year. Moses saw God, but not his face. God told him, no one may see me and live. So when it says in Revelation 22 that we'll see God's face, that should be pretty astounding to us. Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Therefore, we will be holy. Completely sinless because of Christ. Seeing God will be the greatest joy by which all other joys will be measured. So when I think about our Grand Canyon experience, and that will be a pale, trivial joy compared to being with God, well, that's, that's pretty exciting. Now, here we find another stumbling block to some people in thinking about this. Are we making an idol out of our future joy? Shouldn't we be seeking God strictly for who he is and not for what we can get from it? So Alcorn uses a really good analogy for this question. Suppose you're sick and a friend brings over a meal. What's meeting your need? The friend or the meal? The visit or the meal? Well, they both are. If he dropped off the meal and run, because he didn't have time, you'd have felt grateful and you would enjoyed a good meal. You're too sick to make it. If he hadn't brought a meal and he dropped in to chat for half an hour, you would have felt that that was even better. That's an even better gift. But you got both the higher joy, the visit, and he was the source of the secondary joy. He also brought a meal. Likewise, God will be our primary joy. He'll be the source of all other joys, and he wants us to have them for our pleasure. God isn't displeased when we enjoy something. He's not critical when we enjoy a good meal or make love to our spouse or watch the Dallas Cowboys who are playing at 1 o'clock, so you'll be out of here in an hour and a half. Or reading a good book. It's, it's, obviously, it's important that we don't make idols out of them, that they don't come between us and God. But God's not displeased when we enjoy something. Think about the gifts that you just gave last week. The one that gave you the most joy in giving, probably because the person who got it was absolutely thrilled. And they were so grateful to you. And they expressed that gratitude to you. You probably felt, that was really good. I'm glad, I'm so glad I did that. When the, when the, when the person who got it absolutely loved it, did that cause you to resent them and want them to love it less? Well, of course not. It's right that they were grateful to you for, for loving them enough to want their happiness. And in heaven, we're not going to have any capacity to turn things into idols. All of our joy will be derivative of our joy in him. Flowers will be beautiful because he is. Sports will be fun because he is. Study will be rewarding because he is. And our work will be fulfilling because he is fulfilling.
But with all of this, thanks to the incarnation that we just celebrated last week, we will actually walk and talk and eat with Jesus. Just like the disciples did. Now if I asked you who you would choose to see first in the new earth, who would it be? I bet for Grace it would be Howard and for Ella it would be Robert. It might be your favorite Christian author. It might be your favorite theologian or musician who's gone on before. It might be an artist or an athlete. Uh, Randy Alcorn, his very first would be uh, Eric Liddell, the runner from the Chariots of Fire. Yet Jesus is the greatest in all of these pursuits. He's the most knowledgeable, talented, beautiful, and interesting one we could ever choose. And we're going to have eternity to enjoy with him. Now, on top of that, he died a horrible death just so you could be there with him. I hope you never think that when you get to heaven, it's going to be boring. Alcorn goes on for many chapters discussing ruling with Christ, worshiping in heaven, other really fascinating things that we don't have time for. But I just want to save a couple of minutes for some of the more interesting questions. Things like the New Jerusalem. The Bible describes New Jerusalem with exact dimensions. It will be 12,000 cubic stadia. That translates to 2,200 kilometers width, length, and height. Like from here to, I don't know, Saskatchewan. The ground floor of that city will be 2 million square miles. Each story, if each story was 12 feet high, there'd be 600,000 stories. Now, even if these dimensions are all figurative, and they may be, we can assume from it that space is not going to be an issue. The city will have 12 gates, manned by 12 angels, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each gate will be carved from a single pearl. Are they portals to come and go from the city to the country? They can't, it could all just be symbolic, but they could be real as well. The greatest example of that is this wedding ring. It's very symbolic of my commitment to my wife, but it's, it's a literal ring. It really is a ring. There, there should be 12 gates carved from a single pearl, whatever those portals, wherever those gates lead. Will there be time? Will the new earth have a sun and a moon? Will there be weather? Will we still be male and female? How will we travel? Will we transmute? Will we wear clothes? Will we eat and drink? Will we be tempted to sin? We know there's going to be no sin, but will we still be tempted? How will we disagree with each other? Will we read books? Will we sleep and rest? Will we work? Will we have our own homes? I could, I could keep going for ten more minutes on these topics, but every one of them Randy Alcorn devotes one or two pages to. A reasoned, logical explanation of what he believes the answer to all those questions are. One question that really gets the juices flowing is whether or not we will all be the same age. If you think about a six-year-old girl who tragically died and went to heaven, and an 80-year-old man, will they still be the way they were when they died? Theologians have spent lots of time researching, discussing this. Um, A lot of them are in the camp that says, we will all be the age of maturity. We'll all be 25, 25 to 30. Other theologians have said, have said, uh, I'm sorry, some of you 25-year-olds are not mature. I'm sorry. <laughs> Other theologians have said, obviously, we will be the, the age that Christ was when he died. That, he, he's our example. So we'll all be 33. Others point to Isaiah that describes the lion 
lying down with the yearling and a little child shall lead them. Seems to point out that there'll be children. Will parents who have, have lost a child, will they watch that child grow? Will parents always be older than their children? Fascinating. It really gets you thinking. I want to finish now on a couple of points that confirms the importance of this topic. Um, Lynn and Tom and Sylvain and I had the opportunity to travel with Pastor Matt to the Feb Central Conference last year. And the guest speaker was this church's favorite theologian, D.A. Carson. He gave four talks, four hour-long talks about the parables of Jesus. The final talk was about Lazarus and the rich man, the one I mentioned earlier. And they were in heaven after they died. So at the end of that sermon, he said, I want to make a point to everyone in the room. It was late in the conference, so a lot of people had already left, but there were 250 people in that room, all either pastors or elders in Baptist churches across Ontario and Quebec. He said, I want to make a point to everyone in this room. He took his glasses off, and he came around the podium, and he said, if you are not spending a lot of time teaching and preaching on heaven and hell, then get out of the ministry. The expression you could hear a pin drop just doesn't say it. It was silent. Here is one of the world's leading living theologians telling a whole group of leaders that if they don't spend a good amount of time teaching and preaching on heaven and hell, then they should get a new line of work. It was very sobering. I decided that day I'm going to finish this sermon. So I hope all of this has caused you to think a little differently about your future and about heaven And I hope you leave here filled with joyful anticipation. But I do want to say that the joy is only there if you're going to be there. And if you're not sure that you're going to be there, then the first step is right now, asking for forgiveness of your sins. You will never regret it. And I can't promise you that the rest of your life will be easy and great but I can promise you that your eternity will be glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can read your word and get such joy out of thinking of eternity with you. Thank you for giving us that second chance, sending Christ to die for us when we chose sin. And thank you for the promise of the renewal of the earth and the promise of glory. Be with us today in the name of your precious and holy son, Jesus.